Hello there, this is Lisa Borders, and on this podcast, I'll connect with people from all walks of life. We'll talk about overcoming adversity, transmuting the shadow, and moments of illumination. We'll explore what it means to fulfill our potential while maintaining our most authentic selves. And we'll reflect on the lessons we're learning all along the way. If you feel inspired by what you hear, subscribe wherever you're listening, leave a five-star review, share it with a friend, and join the community at lisaborders.us. Thank you for joining me, and this is Enlightened. Okay, everybody, today is a special day, and I have a special treat. I am with my sister from another, Mr. Elizabeth Williams, a fellow Dukie I have known for a minute. I met her actually through the WNBA, but we have a bunch of connections that we're going to explore. She's an All-American. She's a WNBA professional player. And most importantly, today in this environment, she's a social activist and is using her voice to move the conversation forward. So let's jump in. We're so glad you all are here with us. But E, so good to see you. How are you? (laughs) I'm doing well. It's great to see you and great to hear from you. Listen, I see you're in your apartment and many of us are quarantined. If not all of us, we are sheltering in place in the U.S., but you are not in the U.S. You're in Turkey. Tell me what's happening in Turkey. Yes, yes. I'm playing professionally in Ankara, Turkey, the capital of Turkey, for a team called Botas Spor. I actually played for this club two years ago, but yeah, so I'm playing over here, just trying to stay safe and COVID-free and uh, stay in shape, just enjoying playing out here again. Understand. So WNBA players, most people don't know this, that all of you have to have four years post high school to be eligible for the draft, which you were drafted in 2015 in the first round. And so educated is like one of the first attributes in addition to the physical attributes and all of the excellence that you guys bring on the court. But this notion of playing overseas, so you guys are playing six months here and six months overseas. How is that? You're moving not just from country to country, but continent to continent, exposure to different cultures and currencies and communities. Yeah, it's one of When someone asked me like my favorite thing about playing, it's like my favorite and least favorite being overseas because obviously it's great to have the opportunity to continue playing, to make money, to travel, to explore different cultures and meet different people. But at the same time, we're away from our families for an extended period of time. I think obviously there are some days that are awesome and some days that are tough, but I'm always thankful for the opportunity to play over here and to say that I have friends in literally all over the world, which uh, a lot of people can't say. That's for sure. Many Americans don't leave our home cities, counties, or countries, and you've gone completely to another continent. But you were born in Europe. You were born in England. Can you tell me about growing up and coming from the UK here and your family's background? Yeah, so both of my parents are Nigerian. They were born and raised there. My dad's a doctor, mom's a nurse, and my dad studied a bit of public health in the UK, and that's where I ended up being born. As you can hear, I don't have an accent because I was only there from about 
think zero to four. So I don't really remember much of it, but I still have family in the UK, still have family in Nigeria. But when my family came to the US, my dad finished up some of his schooling and then we ended up moving to Virginia Beach. And that's where I was basically raised. And that's where I went to elementary, middle and high school. Yeah. We are both Dukies and we are proud Dukies. We got the big blue D on our forehead, but you played four years there, became an All-American and your jersey is now retired. When did you start playing basketball and how did you fall in love with it? I actually started playing basketball when I was about nine years old. Neither of my parents play basketball. My mom picked up a ball in school, <laughs> but basketball just wasn't the thing. It wasn't popular. Soccer is obviously really popular in, in Nigeria and in the UK. I picked up basketball by chance. A family friend said, hey, your daughter's pretty tall and <laughs> she should think about playing basketball. That's how it started. So I was about nine and I just ended up falling in love with it. And for my parents, obviously it was an adjustment. It's learning the game, learning about honestly, how these, how AAU works and how all of these circuits work, because it's really complicated when you don't know much about it. And yes, ended up falling in love with the game, eventually got a trainer and I was in the gym nonstop and my parents supported me throughout all of that. How did you find Duke? And was it basketball that drew you? I know you talk about pre-med and you've got still stuff going on in your head. You've got that with your dad being a doc and your mom being a nurse. How'd you find Duke? Virginia Beach is obviously close to Durham, but I'm not going to call mm -hmm. it geography. You tell me. <laughs> yeah, geography played a part. I, I think it was important for me not to be too far away from home. I, I still wanted my parents and my family to be able to watch games. But ultimately, I think with my background as well, education was number one. And Duke is is one of the best schools in the world, not just in the U.S. And so it was that combination of academics as well as the athletics, just a nationally ranked program, an opportunity to compete for a national championship and play really high level basketball. For me, it was the perfect combination of all of those things. I remember coming to the ceremony when they retired your jersey. And I remember looking up all the statistics. I had no idea <laughs> you had the most assists when you were a senior, I think, because you played four years. I was like, holy cow, that's impressive. But raising your jersey to the rafters, tell me what you felt like. I remember that night. In it was crazy. Yeah, it was a special moment. And that was why I wanted you there. Obviously, like you've said, we're both Dukies and your work with the W. So it was like the perfect combination. So I was really glad that you could make it. But it was really, it was an emotional night. I'm not generally super emotional person, but I think when you're in those types of moments and you have your friends and your family and all the people that care about you to support and see everything that you've done, it was powerful. And so I think in that moment, it's like you come in expecting a certain thing. You expect your mind to act a certain way. And then when you actually see it, it was overwhelming. Just a real feeling of gratitude and yeah, just an excitement around that and around the way even women's basketball has grown. For sure. And your younger brother is now a blue devil too. And I would say baby boy because he's younger, but <laughs> that's a big dude. Is he having fun at Duke too? Yeah, he actually had his career high last night. He had 18 points and 11 rebounds. It was, the game was at like nine Eastern and wow. I'm overseas. So of course I couldn't watch, but I woke up to a lot of notifications and text messages and I made sure to text him. So 
it's really cool that he ended up choosing Duke. I always tell people I didn't push Duke on him. I said, you can, you can go wherever you want to go. But I think the family ties helped him make the decision to come as well. He's following in Big Sis's footsteps and you've cast a very long shadow. But listen, the community is important, I know, to you and to Mark. And he happens to be a young Black man. And I know there's been a lot of conversation around communities of color, but particularly young Black men who suffer at the hands of those who perhaps don't understand us, those who are perhaps fearful, or those who are just mean. There's a combination of all of that. And last year, that was brought to a head through the George Floyd murder. Let's just call it what it was. And you, I know, were instrumental in stepping into this space and leading your sisters at the Atlanta Dream and also the W, but just the community at large. Can you talk about the transition or why you decided to step into that space so boldly? It's one thing to think about it or write about it. It's another to go out and join protests like you did. Yeah, absolutely. I think one thing that COVID allowed for was a lot of self-reflection. This pandemic allowed for a time where people weren't constantly on the go. People weren't so worried about work and all this and all that. And we were forced to self-reflect. And we had that moment combined with the actual visual of seeing George Floyd be killed, be murdered. I think in that moment, a lot of people had to take a step back. And I know for me personally, with all that was happening with Ahmaud Arbery, with Breonna Taylor, with George Floyd, that was the first time where after seeing something, I felt like I had to really do something. It's one thing to see something and then just go back to what you're doing. But I think the pandemic forced everyone to think about what actually is really important to us. And I went to my first ever protest in Atlanta, not long after those killings. And I think feeling the emotion behind everything, and honestly, some of the intimidation behind having the National Guard taking over Centennial Park, like all of those emotions and feelings, they stick with you. And so once we knew that we as WNBA players were going to have the opportunity to still play this season. We did not want any of the conversations, any of the momentum from the tragedies that had happened to be lost. Understood. Take me to that moment, if you would, because I recall seeing all of this on TV. I saw some of it in person, but the National Guard piece when you think about we are all Americans and we are taxpayers, we pay into the country's coffers to pay for the National Guard who are supposed to protect us. Mm -hmm. Tell me how that made you feel as they are surrounding Centennial Olympic Park, which is the People's Park. It's owned by the state, yeah. but that means everybody yeah. gets access to it. I think that was the other thing that was triggering about it was because when you generally think about Centennial Park, that's where the tourists come. That's where everybody that comes to Atlanta just comes to walk and to explore and to just see them. Honestly, they're just standing there to intimidate because it's not like the protesters are really saying anything to them. If anything, the yelling and the chanting, like we're supporting each other and they're police everywhere, but it wasn't like it was directed towards them. So it was like an invasion of a really peaceful space. And so I think for me, especially, I was a little bit frustrated by it too, because at the end of the day, the people we're here out of sadness, out of frustration, out of disappointment. And I think if anything, we weren't supposed to be the ones that were intimidating others. So yeah, that was a powerful moment for me, for sure. 
Understood. So as I think about the summer, as it progressed and the W decided, okay, the season will go on. We will play in the bubble, or as you all called it, the wubble <laughs> in Florida. The owner of the WNBA or the co-owner, Kelly Leffler, was an appointed senator. And I remember you guys dedicated the season to Black Lives Matter and you had that a decal on the floor that very clearly stated Black Lives Matter. And then Kelly made some statements and sent letters to the league saying she didn't agree. Tell me how that made you feel. And did you expect any of that? Did the team expect any of that? How did that go over? No, we really didn't expect any of that because when that letter happened, it seemed random. We had just gotten into the bubble other than announcing that we were dedicating the season to say her name and to Black Lives Matter and to this greater social justice movement. It's not like we had heard anything directly from her. But yeah, then she decided that she wanted to make those statements and talked about putting an American flag on our jerseys. And I don't want politics in sports. When she was ironically saying all these things that were bringing politics into sports, it was a tough moment for dream players, especially. But at the end of the day, we doubled down on our statement supporting Black Lives Matter, supporting Say Her Name. I always think about the conversations that we had with Professor Kimberly Crenshaw that we had with Breonna Taylor's mother. Like The humanity of this movement is what often gets lost. I think people always want to talk about the politics and the language. And, and in reality, this is about lives being lost. This is about health disparities. This is literally just about people's lives. So I think that was a lot of the frustration in the language that she used and the words that she used. And so we had to be creative in finding out, okay, we hear this, but we don't agree with it. And now what are we going to do with this moving forward? Help me understand, and I don't want to make any assumptions here. I know you were working with the union and you hold an office with the union. Tell me, when you guys decided, not just the Atlanta Dream, but the entire league, okay, we're going to stand as one, how did you all make that decision? I know you have something called the Social Justice Council. Can you explain a little bit of what that is and how you all use that to bring your collective voices together? Yeah, so initially, just when we were talking about what the season was even going to look like. That started with conversations with player reps, player representatives, and the executive committee of the union. So basically player reps talk to different players from their team about what's important to them. What do you guys need when we play in this bubble? What, what are the things that we want to talk about? And so social justice was something that constantly came up in those conversations. And then as we move forward, as we obviously talked about COVID protocols, because that was always the number one topic, we said, okay, when we do get into this bubble, what do we want this social justice to look like? And so that's when we came up with, in the summer, having a social justice council. So having players that their job was specifically related to making sure that we had the topics that we wanted to cover, the language that we wanted to use that was consistent throughout the league. So it was just a combination of player reps communicating with their teams and then player reps communicating with the EC and the union staff as we went back to the league. And then everything just came together in that way. So just constant communication. <laughs> no, I love that because the notion of all athletes do is play sports. 
Well, in the W, clearly that is not the case, but this was a very acute issue for the country. And then you had a very specific person inside the WNBA family who was having a public disagreement. And I find it fascinating and I love it that you guys, you women, were able to not only have infrastructure to deal with one another, but you had strategy on a go forward basis. So take me through the summer. I remember the shooting in Kenosha and you guys deciding what you were gonna do and how and why. Can you remind me of all the things that happened then? If you probably remember them to some level of granularity because you spoke for the entire W, I do remember that. <laughs> yeah, oh gosh, that whole, honestly that week was crazy. But, but yeah, when we got the news of Jacob Blake's shooting, not long after that, the Milwaukee Bucks decided to not play in their game and protest that game. And then from that moment forward, I think the NBA decided, like the other games that were happening, decided not to play. And we were scheduled to play, specifically Atlanta was scheduled to play the Mystics at 7 p.m. And Minnesota and L.A. were scheduled to play at 9 or 8. There were a couple games that night. But they were ESPN games, so big games for us. It was actually also our breast health awareness game. And so this was all happening leading up to game time. So a couple of hours before tip. And so we went to the gym as scheduled. We got to the arena. And first I heard a teammate who said, oh, are we, are we, are we going to play in the game tonight? And at that point, I hadn't really communicated with anyone else, hadn't communicated with the union staff, other players from other teams. And I was like, Honestly, I think everything's going in schedule. Like I personally haven't heard anything. And then probably a couple minutes later, I get a phone call from Terry Jackson, our union director saying, hey, I'm not sure what you guys are thinking about doing. Just FYI, the NBA did this. And I know you guys are at the arena. I don't know if you've talked about this. And I said, honestly, we haven't really talked about it. And then not long after that, I guess the Mystics were already on the bus on the way over, but on the bus, they were having conversations about not playing. And similarly, they had actually worn t-shirts that had read with Jacob Blake's name across the front and, and had seven bullet holes like drawn on the back. So they were either way, they were going to make a statement. So then we continue. Some people like go out on the court, start shooting. By the time the Mystics actually get to the arena, they say, hey, honestly, we don't feel comfortable playing today because of everything that's been going on. And for us, like we, we had players like everywhere. And so we had to round everybody up and say, hey, let's have a conversation about this. If we don't play, what does it look like? Why should we play? Why shouldn't we play? Because you have to remember there's the angle of we're actually on TV. This is a nationally televised game. This is a really big moment for us as we're growing our visibility and a lot of the activism that we've been able to show has been shown because we're on TV and we're visible. And so we don't just want to not do that. We don't just want to not play and lose this momentum. Whereas the other end of the coin is like this whole day, this is bigger than basketball. This moment is bigger than basketball. And so we literally were out on the court having these conversations. This is like an hour before tip off. And then it even got to the point where the 8 p.m. game, those teams started coming in. And then they came on the court and we're literally like four teams just talking this out. What does this look like? If we don't play, what does it look like? How do we continue to talk about voting 
and criminal justice reform and all these things. And so ultimately we decided that we weren't going to play that night and we we're going to dedicate that night and the next day, which next slate of games to honestly a mental refresh and an opportunity to make sure that everyone was registered to vote, make sure all the WNBA players that have been talking about voting are actually registered. And just, it was like a unique day for us in regards to social justice. So I think a lot of people don't realize that we're literally <laughs> like out on the court before tip off, all these players, all these teams having these really difficult conversations because you have to think about all the emotions behind that. And we knew the way the statement came about was that we knew we were going to have some sort of statement because of the Jacob Blake shooting, but we just didn't know if it was going to be like in between games or <laughs> within games. So we were drafting something up. I was just constantly on the phone. And then once we decided that we weren't going to play and what we were going to do, that's when I was able to edit quickly on my phone. That's why I was reading it from my phone and make the announcement in front of ESPN that night. All right. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> to, I had no idea. I knew there was a lot of conversation that went on, but it's helpful to understand it was real time. Like you guys were making decisions, talking with one another, looking at the situation, the facts, the things that had happened that day and the night before, but also in the context of all that was going on in the country. And you guys were somewhat isolated in the wobble, but you weren't isolated from what's going on all around you. So that's pretty incredible to say the least. And I know you all had the Say Her Name campaign, if you will, with mm -hmm. Brianna Taylor and her family, but obviously that extends beyond her to all women and all men of color who had been dealt an inequitable or a <clears throat> bad blow based on nothing oftentimes. But let me bring it back even more specifically to Atlanta and what was going on with the Atlanta dream mm -hmm. and your co-owner who was an appointed senator and she didn't agree with what you guys were doing. And clearly she had opponents in her race, but you guys, perhaps you were doing this real time too. So let's share yeah. <laughs> with how you guys made a decision to step into the real political space in the traditional sense, because you're in the social justice space, obviously, mm -hmm. but you took that and from protesting at Centennial Park to reading a statement on ESPN on behalf of the entire league after the Jacob Blake shooting. And now you say, okay, this is not cool. We are not with this program. We are not with this person and we're going to take an affirmative step. So talk to me a little bit about how you all made that decision and why you stepped forward so boldly. Yeah, it was definitely all real time. But like I said, Kelly made that kind of right as we had gotten into the bubble. And we we're actually in our quarantine period. So our team immediately had a Zoom call. It was the entire team, the entire staff, like coaches or GM. And to start off, the staff basically said, hey, players, we've got your back, whatever you want to do. Whatever you decide to do, we feel we're going to support you. And, and we know for you players, this is really important. And as players, we just had conversations about, okay, one, what does this mean? And then two, like, how do we move forward? And for us, I think it was tough because we had a, a few players that are new picked up in free agency or through the draft. And so for them, I think they were a bit frustrated. It's like they just joined this new team and then they have to deal with these issues. And then for people like me who have been there, 
there's like all types of emotions. Like I've been to Kelly's house. Like I've had a longer relationship with her, but at the end of the day, we knew that we were going to double down on our support of Black Lives Matter and all the work that we're doing in regards to social justice, but we still wanted to do more. Like we, we obviously wanted to make our statement, but we wanted an action behind it. We didn't know what that was going to look like. We thought about like a boycott, but again, it was like, this isn't about her. This is about us. And the fact that as female athletes, we are representing Atlanta. We're not representing her. We're representing our hometowns and each other. And that's when we were just like, we'll think about this and figure something out. And at that point, other players in the league and the union had been open about saying, we don't want this owner here. She doesn't reflect our values and the values of of who these WNBA players are. This league is majority of black women. As we were moving forward, our executive committee, we were always trying to come up with ideas. And then I believe it was Sue Bird that was saying like, she's in the Senate seat. She, no one actually voted for her in the seat. She was appointed to the seat. And we can't really do anything about her ownership necessarily. That's technically on the league if they want to do something. But we're sitting here talking about social justice and voting. So what better way than to support her opponent in the Senate seat for a really, ultimately a really important Senate seat at that. And so that's when conversation started. That's when we reached out to you. We got connected with Stacey Abrams because at the end of the day, we're not politicians. We don't know what, (laughs) we don't know what vetting a candidate looks like. We don't know what the language that we should use, but it, it was really helpful that Reverend Warnock was open to speaking with us and having conversation and that conversation was open to all players. It wasn't just the executive committee. And so we said, hey, we're thinking about doing this. We want everyone to have the chance to at least meet this guy and see what he's about. And it ended up working out that he was someone that, again, supported a lot of what the W and its players support. And it was the perfect way to connect all the dots with social justice and reform and voting while also simultaneously finding a way to against our our team owner. Listen, I, I remember these conversations in the summer and as a former president of the W, I am always the number one fan for everybody in the league. Folks used to always say, what's your favorite team? I was like, I don't have a favorite. Yes, I was an Atlanta (laughs) fan for, you know, years with my courtside seats. I was always coaching from the other side. Mm -hmm. Uh, But at the same time, the league as a whole is really important to me and to a whole lot of people. So to have you all reach out and say, do you know Reverend Warnock. And I remember saying, I've known him for almost 20 years. And (laughs) they see too, who we have been in the trenches together as well. So I appreciate that you guys not only knew you needed help, but you reached out and said, this is what we need help on. We need to understand who this person is and what it means to vet a candidate. But again, that goes back to how you guys do things. And I really appreciate that. But you all took it a whole step further. Like we talked about support. We Mm -hmm. talked about raising awareness and visibility for his campaign and for what he stood for, because you're right, he was and is philosophically aligned on issues and his perspectives. But talk about this decision to go another step. I have never been so proud of you guys, but 
I didn't have anything to do with that. That was all y'all. Neither did yeah. state. We'll talk about that. <laughs> oh man, the shirts. Yeah, again, this was like the executive committee putting their heads together. And we had throughout the wobble been making statements with our shirts. We'd made statements about Brianna Taylor. I'm even wearing our bet on women shirt. I love it. Our MO because we had the photographers that took pictures of us entering the arena. And so shirts were the the move. (laughs) Every, even every social, every team, social media person was making sure to show what we were wearing as we were walking into the arena. And so along with, with the support of Warnock, it's what better way than to keep doing what we're doing and to wear about Warnock shirts. And so we said, we also wanted to make sure we were wearing the shirts at the right time because we wanted it to be when Atlanta was at the forefront. And so it was going to be our first nationally televised game, like our first ESPN game. So we were going to play Phoenix. So it was like, all right, Atlanta's going to wear these Vote Warnock shirts. And you know what? The whole league's going to wear the shirts. <laughs> so not only was Atlanta wearing Vote Warnock shirts, but the team, our opponents, Phoenix, they were wearing the shirts. And all the games for those next couple of days were going to wear Vote Warnock shirts. And then that's when the conversation started coming. Who's this Warnock guy? What, what is this about? And then people started putting it together. And so that was really powerful. Obviously, we didn't. you didn't have to wear the shirts. It wasn't mandatory for players to wear the shirts, but we just explained the significance and the power of our unified voice. And almost every player decided to wear these Vote Warnock shirts and kind of the rest was history. So on this podcast, we are always talking about moments of enlightenment and I don't want to put words in your mouth. So I want you to help me understand if this was a moment of enlightenment for you and perhaps for your sisters in the W, obviously you can't speak for them, but it seems like you have not only grown to this moment, but met this moment in grand style. Was this a moment of enlightenment for you, starting with what happened in May and the beginning of the summer and all the way through? Help me with that. Oh yeah, absolutely. I still think about taking a picture of myself in the shirt. Blake took the picture of me. I was like, all right, this is the moment. We got to get this photo. Took the picture and made my caption. I think I posted it on the way to the game so that after the game, I could see the reaction to it. But I I just remember like how I was feeling (laughs) just standing there taking that picture because like I knew it was a big deal, but man, like I think once everything really happened, it was like, we really did something that just has not been done before and was really powerful in a lot of ways for us, for the W, but for the state of Georgia and what ultimately ended up being the nation in in that seat. But yeah, I think that moment was just really powerful and cool to see what collective strength and strategy can do. So pull it forward. We had, that's in the summer during the season, right? It's toward the back end of the season. And then the election, the general's in November. And Kelly and Warnock, so Leffler and Warnock, end up as the two highest vote getters. Actually, Warnock had more votes than Kelly, right? And we go to a runoff in January. And I can remember texting you back and forth the day of the election. You're in Turkey. I'm here in the US. uh, And I'm trying to keep you up to date real time. I didn't really need to do that. I just wanted to do it. You were kind (laughs) enough to stay awake and text with me. Tell me how you were feeling that night when that was going on. Man, just everything. Nervous, excited. I I felt 
pretty confident because I actually thought back to the conversation we had with Reverend Warnock in the bubble, one of the conversations we had where he said, even if I don't win in the general or I don't hit over 50%, like I'm confident that in a runoff I can win. And I remember thinking about that conversation the night of the runoff. I, I think he can do this. Like, I think this is really going to happen. And so I think that's why I was restless and, and texting in the middle <laughs> of the night at all types of hours. And he did. And so in that moment, it was just, it was awesome. And to see that Ossoff one as well, because I think a lot of, there was a lot of momentum in kind of people realizing how important both of those seats were, but actually seeing that was really incredible. And yeah, I just thought back to the summer and all of that work. And it was just a unique moment, honestly. Oftentimes we put in work and we don't necessarily see an immediate payoff. Now in sports, that's not always true. Usually you put in the work and you win, right? Yeah, Yeah. But sometimes you don't win and you don't see the full fruit of your labor until a second season or a third season. So did this feel like a win after all the work? And this was new work for you Mm -hmm. and for your sisters because you guys were not in, you were in the social justice space. You were not in the political space before. Yeah, absolutely. I think that was also why there was even a level of pride too in what we did, because it's just like you said, this isn't a space that we're used to being in, but we found a way. And even when I was overseas, I was trying to record PSAs and do stuff with more than a vote. Like, thank goodness for Wi-Fi, all the things that <laughs> right? you can do through technology to get people excited about voting and just to learn about all of this and the significance of these seats. I think I definitely believe like it was cool to see that your work, your prior work could actually have a moment where you could see the results and they were what you wanted to see. Speaking of Wi-Fi and (laughs) thank God for technology and you mentioned more than a vote. So talk a little bit about what more than a vote is. And it seems to me that you all not only were working together on the W side, you were working with your brothers on the NBA side, and there was stuff going on across leagues too. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Even thinking back to Jacob Blake's shooting, it wasn't even just the NBA and WNBA that didn't play. I think Major League Baseball and some NFL camps, like all these teams didn't play. And I think that was one of the first moments when people saw the significance of athlete activism and the power in that. And fast forwarding into the general election season and more than a vote, which LeBron helped to get started and and catalyze this movement for athlete activism, allowed us to be out there and to talk about the importance of voting, making sure people were registered to vote, working closely with local organizations that have been doing this for a really long time, but may not have had the shine that they got this year in this general election. So I think that was more than a vote allowed athletes to really connect and impact their communities in a way that we really hadn't in the past. Well, it's fascinating to me. I think back to Tommy Smith and John Carlos at the Olympics in 1968, raising a fist, a black gloved fist and being expelled and medals being taken, but they were individual athletes who were using their platform literally and figuratively to make a statement. And I think back to 2016, when the women of the W, before Kaepernick took a knee, 
that fall, you all took a stand as a league. And I am so proud to see it come, that theme continue, not just from 2016, it's a lot of it's been here the entire time, but it continues mm -hmm. and it seems to get even stronger, more vibrant and more sustainable. So what's next, E? Do you feel like you guys will stay in this space? Or what do you think is next, not just for Atlanta, but for the league? Because the league's visibility has never been higher than it is today. So what do you think? I think uh, I can attribute even for myself a lot of this work in advocacy and activism to 2016 because even that was only my second year in the league and I know I was really hesitant to speak up and speak out. There are other players that were like gung-ho Black Lives Matter and I'm like Black Lives Matter but I don't want to say anything. <laughs> so <laughs> I think about even my journey from that into 2020 into even and march against Centennial Park. Yeah, exactly. So I think there's a constant growth and a constant kind of learning curve for all of us as athletes. I think there will be some continued political involvement for sure. I think now that we've done this work with the sentency, it's like, all right, like it's accountability time. What are we going to do with this? And I know our biggest focus right now, as we're heading into our 2021 season, is COVID is still here, but the vaccine is here as well. And so now we've had a lot of conversations about vaccine hesitancy and especially in black and brown communities who are the ones that are being most affected by COVID. And so we've had conversations with epidemiologists and doctors and virologists and public health experts because again, now that we have this bigger visibility and platform, we want to make sure that people in our communities are as educated and informed as possible as it relates to the vaccine. And so I think our work is always going to be there, but I think it's shifting a little bit from specifically political to talking more about COVID and the vaccine and stuff like that. So I think the work will continue, but sometimes it will be a little different. So the topics may change, but the tenor and the tone of what you all are doing is going to stay front and center. And I know you've hosted your own podcast where you've been talking to physicians, women in particular, about the vaccine. How is that being received? And we in our African-American community have the Tuskegee experiment that many people point to where the government did not share all the information about the medicine or the placebos and people mm -hmm. died. And so there's a lot of hesitancy based on history. How is your information being received thus far? I think people are grateful because there's just so much misinformation out there. And so I know for me, especially, it's just important to get the right information out there with people that have been doing this work for a really long time. And I think it's important to acknowledge what happened in the past, to acknowledge Henrietta Lacks and the Tuskegee experiments, but to realize that Times have changed a lot, and this is also a unique opportunity because we're in this moment where people are aware of these disparities for Black and brown communities to be in the forefront and receive these vaccines, and this can help the communities that need the help the most as they understand this more. And so I know for me, like, that's really important and just stopping the misinformation that's out there and being reminded of the Black and brown people that are at the forefront of even creating this vaccine and knowing that this technology has been out for a really long time. And yeah, I think it's just a unique opportunity for black and brown people to actually be one step ahead of the experiments and not be on, on the other side. Makes perfect sense. And it seems to me it's come full circle 
the parents right. that are the doctor and the nurse, and now the daughter <laughs> who's the professional basketball player, but who's also an activist and an advocate and an ally for those who need it the most. E, I'm so grateful to have had this opportunity to spend some time with you. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. And tell me one last thing, what's next for you? Obviously you're gonna be playing for a while and I'm not trying to get you to retire and do anything else, <laughs> but when you finish, are you gonna do medical school or something? What are you gonna do all that big brain in your head? <laughs> so I wanna go to medical school. That's still a big passion of mine. I think people still need to even now still need to see more black physicians and black PAs. It just like people need to see it. Representation matters. So that's important to me. I know some people think I should get into politics because of <laughs> this work with Warnock, but I'm not sure. Maybe, but, or maybe my medicine will look like more like public health stuff, but yeah, that's where my head is right now. There's certainly a way to marry up public policy and clinical health and health care in general. Right, right now yeah. we do, we don't do prevention. We like mm -hmm. manage illness. We don't really take care of health. So if you can help us change that paradigm, it'd be more than welcome, but you are a gem. Thank you so much. Grateful to you. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. All right, everyone, that was this week's episode of Enlightened. I hope you learned something new and feel inspired to meet any challenge you may be facing in life. If you enjoy the energy we're creating here, subscribe wherever you're listening, leave a five-star review, share it with a friend, and join the Enlightened community for bonus episodes and deeper discussions at lisaborders.us. Thanks for joining me, and I'll see you next week.